I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. podcast and we've got a very special guest this evening one of the greatest managers of all time a man who's written a book about his extraordinary managerial skills not middle management i'm talking about top management top management this is miles copeland oh good lord <laughs> hello miles hi guys uh thanks for the introduction can i just describe to our listeners what we're seeing because you you're on a zoom call and it looks like you're wearing an, a kind of an ecclesiastical cloak or maybe you're having your hair cut. Well, you can you can call it whatever you like, but uh, yeah, I'm in France at the moment, and it's a little bit chilly, so I put on a sweatshirt. I don't even know what I've got on, but uh. <laughs> so now we we discuss transport and journeys and things like that. And journeys must have started for you early on because um, your father had a very interesting job in that he was head of the CIA in the Middle East. That must have meant a lot of sort of moving around. Uh, we were moving around in secrecy ever at that point. Well, you know, in those days, things weren't so secret. You know, it, was, it wasn't such a big deal. I think later on, you know, after the James Bond era and after the conflict between East and West became more and more pronounced, things got more serious. But I think in the beginning, the CIA was basically an intelligence gathering organization by a bunch of people who didn't know what they were doing. So, I mean, I met, you know, Gawal Abdul Nasser, who came to the house, you know, and we we had dinner, and uh, I had my first political conversation with him, and, you know, I met various Syrian dignitaries and Lebanese dignitaries, and it was an interesting upbringing. You're sort of in the midst of all of this uh, skullduggery and, you know, people jockeying for position into governments and overthrows and coup d'etats and all this sort of thing. But, you know, you didn't really think much of it. It sounds like the perfect training for rock and roll management. Absolutely. I think you also <laughs> told me that one of the ways they gathered the information, or maybe your father told me this, was by just reading the local newspapers. Simple as that. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, you know, you, you would want people who could read a newspaper and figure out the nuances of what was being said, you know. When the CIA became more and more militaristic and they began to do operations in Vietnam, they brought in military people who were sort of suspicious of the intellectuals. So, you know, they got rid of people who could really understand the deep meaning of Russian sentences. You know, like if you take English, you know, the word bad, you know, you can say, man, that's really bad. That means it's good, you know, where if you have a slight other way of you putting it forward, it could mean it's really bad, you know, so... So you have to understand the language to understand the nuance. You can't just learn it out of a textbook. And I think that's the problem of the CIA. Like, you know, we went into Iraq thinking we were going to find weapons of mass destruction, where most of us old hands of the Middle East knew there weren't any. You know, 
Saddam Hussein was bu busy building palaces. What did he need atomic bombs for? Did they have a dress code? Was it black suits, black, dark glasses, and black cars? No, they were they were meant to blend in. You know, later on when it became more serious, you know, they began to have to be secretive about things. But in the beginning, you know, Gamal Abdel Nasser knew my father was CIA. He inv actually invited the CIA to help him build his own CIA. You know, so of course everybody knew. You know, so. No, I, I found it kind of glamorous to be interested in it, but he talked me out of it. He said, "Do not, you do not want to go into the CIA because they're all full of idiots. So, <laughs> so I, I decided that I would go into rock and roll instead. Because that's certainly not full of idiots, as we've seen. <laughs> How did your brush with rock and roll begin? How did you get into that? That's quite a different path. Well, it was kind of a falling out, you know, it was like I fell into it. You know, my brother Stuart, you know, who ended up as the drummer in the police, sort of at, at age 12, decided he wanted to be a drummer, and he started drumming. And he was really, he had nobody to play with, but one day a local group in Beirut came to see him and said they need a drummer for a show they're doing at Christmas because their drummer had gone home to America for Christmas, and he kind of sat in with them. And I went to the show, and I guess the sort of bug got me. And, and then a few months later, the promoter came to see me and said that he's bringing a British group to Lebanon to play and then would I help out and I thought well that sounds like fun and I got to know the group and then when I went to London they came to see me and said well be our manager and I was like what are you talking about I know nothing about the music I've been in Beirut since 1958 what do I know you know then I got drafted so I report for duty in America and lo and behold I get rejected by the U.S. Army and all my friends were trying to get out of Vietnam and get out of the army, but I didn't even try, and I got rejected. I was the only one who was rejected. So mm -hmm. I sent an email back to London, and this group emails me, God bless your feet, because I got rejected for high arches. So I went back to London, and they came to see me and said, manage this, and I got into the music business. And it was literally that simple. What was the name of the group that Stuart was in in Beirut? Wichita Vortex Sutra. <laughs> they were sort of a psychedelic idea that we imagined was going on in San Francisco, you know. Uh, and then the British group, by contrast, that, that invited me to manage him was called Rupert's People. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I went from Wichita Vortex Sutra to Rupert's People, and then I met the two guys that became Wishbone Ash. And they were the first guys that were really serious about being a band and was that your first success wishbone ash in the music business yeah yeah because then when we i think when squeeze came onto the scene uh you'd had the star trucking tour there was i think it was a curved air uh wishbone ash a lot of sort of uh, different artists were on there yeah i did this tour thinking you know what goes up can always go up you know little did i know that what goes up can also go down and I did this tour and probably bit off more than I could chew. And I and I actually I had just signed Squeeze. And I remember meeting you guys down in Blackheath or something, and you were all like 16 and 17 years old, you know. And one of Stewart's friends had come to see me, a guy named Lawrence Impey, and he had said, Look, I met I've just I've just come across the Beatles, you know. You gotta come see them. And I remember going down to South London and you had long hair and <laughs> and I thought you were some guy from the gutter you know thank you Little bit I, know. I, then met your, I met your mother and father and i thought well wow what a nice family you know and you were quite different in those days but you always had a very positive attitude which was great you know
I remember Squeeze first went to America. We'd never been. And you said, right, what we're going to do is we're going to go to uh, America. Now, we went uh, because you picked up on the idea that punk music was the new thing. There was a whole new way of doing things. Would you say that was the case back then in 1979? Yeah, I think really I saw what was going on in England and it was very exciting. But America hadn't quite got onto it yet. But there were some interesting things going on. And so I, I needed a group that was musical enough that people would get but was still young enough and you know could could be part of this new wave new you know punk rock kind of thing and squeeze fit the bill perfectly because you all could really play you weren't going to offend all the americans yet you did represent this sort of new generation of music you know so squeeze became sort of like my vanguard of opening up america and i called my brother ian who was at an agency in macon georgia and i said look can you book squeeze and a&M Records, who we just signed to, said, well, they'll support it. So off we went. And I used that tour as a way of learning what was going on in America and squeezing in many ways, opened the door for many groups that followed later. You know, squeeze opened people's eyes. People said, hey, you know, these groups are pretty good, you know. And that helped me with the police and it helped me with the, the Go-Go's, the Bangles and all IRS records and all the things that followed. So squeeze was really an important group to open up America and the rest of the world to this whole new generation of music. But also, I mean, I'm just thinking about transport, because people, one of the most important things, of course, in the music business is touring, because that's the only way that artists make their money, and, 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 and that's how they live their lives. So you're, you went through this world, this is what I'm sort of getting at, of touring both in the backs of vans, driving across America with Squeeze early on, and then later with the the police particularly, you know, you're chartering aeroplanes, uh, you're going around the world. The trans it must have cre created huge uh, sort of um, management tasks to arrange all the transport. Yeah, well, thankfully, you know, the bigger a band gets, you begin to hire people who can help you do that, you know. So, you know, a manager for the equipment who would travel with the equipment and you had a, an assistant for the band. And, you know, you started looking for things like security. I remember at one squeeze show, it was at a squeeze show in, in New Jersey. And uh, we arrived at this club and the bouncers were huge. And I remember thinking, you know, wow, this, these guys are pretty ominous looking. And for some reason, your roadie kicked the door in and hit the manager of the club. And that infuriated the, these bouncers. This was after your show had finished. And I'm in the dressing room with you. And in comes the roadie yelling, help, help. And uh, to cut a long story short, one of the bouncers turned out to be a very helpful guy and actually saved the roadie's life, pulled him out of the fray and threw him out the window and said, run for your life, which he did. I later then hired that guy as Sting's bodyguard, you know, but like, like, like you were saying, you know, you, as time goes on, the bands get bigger, you know, you hire airplanes, you can't really deal with going through the normal airport because you get accosted by people, you know, or want your autograph or want their picture taken or whatever. So it's just easier to have a, a charter plane, you know. So that's the reality of a star, basically. You know, you, you find that your life is not your own because everybody's trying to get at you. The bouncer, Larry, that you're talking about, first of all, I do remember that incident in the dressing room, but each person will remember it slightly differently. But there was this fracas going on 
and we were all half naked in the middle of the dressing room. And I have to say, credit to you, is you calmed the situation like in 12 Angry Men. You were you were said to them, look, you've got to see reason. And I thought, wow, how's he doing this? And you did manage to calm the situation down, let the roadie escape out the window, hired the bouncer, all in the same sort of three minutes, and somehow dealt with the situation, got us out and said, just let's go. And we sort of ran off as quickly as we could. But I heard that later... That same bouncer who then got to work for Sting, he they were on a plane going somewhere and the, the door of the plane opened mid-flight. It's a little, like a tiny little aeroplane. Yeah, like we were flying sort of... to Caracas or something and the window flew open, actually. It wasn't a door, it was a window. And Larry put his hand out to hold the window so they wouldn't fly off and hit the tail of the plane and we'd all crash and die, you know. So he, he ended up saving our lives, you know. Well, that's it. I think Sting told me that, but I think he said that he would he, he that it was the door and Larry had crawled out on the wing and yeah. he shut it with his teeth. <laughs> yeah, that's a much oh, the, better the story. Wing, yeah. The wing fell I'll, off. I'll and go he with that it. one. <laughs> the wing fell. And he no, just held it was it. it was actually a window and he he grabbed the window, but it was either way it was tough and he was like hanging out, you know, holding onto this window for about an hour, you know. And I remember arriving in in, in this airport and. You know, I, I remember looking at Sting and saying, you know, is, is are we okay? And he he kind of didn't really say anything. But then later on, he said, oh, yeah, the pilot ran out first, ran down the steps and kissed the ground. <laughs> then I knew <laughs> always we were in deep trouble. Always, always a good sign. <laughs> so, uh, Miles, where are you now and what are you doing right now? I'm right now in France, actually. I'm at a castle in France. And one of my wilder moments, I bought this castle, and and uh, I haven't been able to be here for two years, so I'm trying to, you know, basically catch up to things that I had started doing when I left two years ago, and then I come back and I find that everything I did had been forgotten, and I had to start all over again. Well, it's covered in dust, so you got a lot of dust in today. Well, I mean, the, the vines are taking over, you know, your stuff that you. It started doing, you know, got buried, you know, in, in time, you know, and, you know, it's amazing how fast plants will grow. What, so what's, what work-wise are you doing now? Well, I'm doing uh, projects. I'm doing a guitar tour with Steve Vai. I'm working with Kenny Wayne Shepherd. So I, I kind of do projects, you know. I'm, I'm not really seeking management or whatever. Um, and, you know, I wrote the book, you know. Basically, I got stuck in L.A. and... I'm sitting here thinking, well, I've got nothing to do. And everybody keeps telling me, well, you got to write a book one day. And I didn't really want to write a memoir, which kind of smacked as being uh, too self-serving, you know, sort of, uh, you know, this is what I did and all right, great kind of thing. I wanted it to be more of a inspirational, educational, something where people could get motivated by reading the book. And I also made a point of, talking about mistakes that were made. So I, the title being Two Steps Forward, One Step Back was really to say, you know, you as long as you keep moving forward, you can make mistakes, but just keep thinking positive and moving forward, you know. So I we made mistakes. Those are my one step back, you know. But in the end, you know, we kept going forward. So even, by the time, like, take Police or Squeeze or any of the bands, by the time people discovered we'd made a mistake, you know, we'd had two or three successes. So, And you have all sorts of people, or you did before COVID, you'd had sort of groups of songwriters and painters and people would gather there in your castle, wouldn't they, for... Uh, yeah, of... we, we actually, I always had a problem with people 
never having enough songs. Like Wishbone, they'd write 10 songs and say, okay, we're ready for an album. Well, as one songwriter said to me, if you want to write 10 great songs, write 100. You know, the more you have to choose from, the better, you know. Luckily, Sting wrote hits, you know, Squeeze wrote hits, uh, but the more songs you can choose from. So I used to invite songwriters here, and I had this idea that if I could mix people with big discipline, like the Nashville writers, who really do think in terms of having hits and, you know, a formula, and put them with some kind of wacko people from the rock world, you might end up with some pretty interesting things. And so we, we did. We ended up with four number ones that were written here. You know, people like Keith Urban, you know, who's an Australian guitar player living in Nashville doing country music, comes to the castle, meets the two girls from the Go-Go's, who were a punk group from LA who were on my label, and they write a hit that goes to number one. And and the interesting thing is, it's the unexpected groupings. You know, we, my first number one was a Belgian bass player, a punk girl from LA, and a national writer. You know, so it's these strange combinations that sometimes work best, you know, so the things you can't really predict. If there was somebody that was interested in transport and they've tuned into our podcast because they're thinking, well, this is interesting. It's all about transport. And we're talking to a top rock and roll manager here. And I want to go into rock and roll because I want to go around and be driven around in in nice cars and and travel on nice planes. But I think, well, certainly the message is that to start with, you're going to be traveling in the back of the van. Well, you know, one of the other problems is that, you know, when you get to be famous, you know, you fly into a place, you do the show. And then you leave, you know, so there have been a lot of cities I've been in, a lot of countries I've been in that I couldn't really tell you anything about the country or the or the place, because all I saw was the airport, the ride in the venue, and that's it, you know. And so you don't really get a chance to sort of wander around the streets and meet people and all that, you know. I mean, with Squeeze and the police and we were driving across, we we got to see America. We, We drove all the way across America, you know, we were, we saw it, you know, but that was when we were unknown. Yeah. When you're known, you fly in, you fly out, you don't see anything. You walk off the stage straight into the limousines, the limousines head straight to the airport. So before you, before anybody knows you're gone, you're already getting on the airplane to fly back to wherever you came from, you know? So unfortunately that's a lot of the, a lot of the glamor of rock and roll as you're spending your time in an airplane and limousines and, a, and backstage. And have you, is there places that you wanted to go back to because you thought, well, I was only there for two minutes, but that looked good. I want to go and see that now. Well, I did get to go back to some places, you know. I mean, we went back to India. I, I, I mean, I went to India like a couple of days earlier to, to get things set up, you know. So some places I had to, you know, some unusual places I had to go. And I did get to spend time and see things. But, you know, across America, I mean, you know, St. Louis and, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, and a lot of these cities, Kansas City, you know. What do I remember? You know, not a lot because I didn't get to see much, you know, but when you get to a place like India or Egypt or, you know, one of these other interesting countries, you know, sometimes you you try to get out. I mean, I remember in Japan, we were up in the northern of Japan and Sting said, let's go skiing. So we went to the ski resort and, you know, we started skiing, but everybody started, you know, we hear all these giggling, you know, and people recognized that it was it was Sting from the police. And so... You know, I had my tape recorder on, and all I've got are giggles on it. You know, people wanting, you know, who oh, stink, stingo, stingo. You know, so, you know, no matter where what you did, you know, people were gonna were gonna see you and and recognize you. You know, so, unfortunately, you know, you 
incognito is not really what you get to do. I like the idea of that. The Japanese people admiring Stingo skiing. And I think we went we went horse riding with you once. You said to us, let's get on, let, we can go. We were in the, the sort of uh, the west of America and, like, and, and it was like cowboy country. Yeah, I was trying to get photos, you know. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, a photo is worth a thousand words, you know. And so I, I thought, well, I, you know, I did very well with the police doing photos. You know, we took, you know, the band to... Egypt and India and all these places and got some amazing photos which got into the papers and I thought well we'll use the same trick with squeeze and we'll you know dress them up as cowboys and off we went well the only one who really got into it was you you know and I got some great photos of you riding horses and whatever and being Mr. Cowboy but all the rest of them you know I remember Glenn looking like he didn't want to be there and I think squeeze were not really as a group we're not really into the you know, this whole idea of creating a mystique and an image and all of that, you know. So it was always sort of pulling teeth, whereas the police, they just loved it. You know, they they they, they, they went for it, you know. Speaking of it, you were actually at the, at the forefront because on your record label in America, you did have a lot of the... It was like the first kind of new wave. They didn't use the word punk so much. But you had, for instance, um, the Dead Kennedys with Jello Biafra. Um, and you had, um, who else? There was a load of uh, quite sort of early um, new wave people that you signed up, which was quite unusual for America. And they all had quite odd images, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, the Cramps and the Buzzcocks and, uh, you know, Wasmo Norees and Skayfish and Wall of Voodoo and the Suburban Lawns and all these these bands, you know. I mean, I, I kind of went, and the Go-Go's even, you know. Girl groups were not a th happening thing in America, you know. So uh, I, I tended to go with bands that had, you know, not only interesting music, but had an interesting story to tell and and looked kind of interesting. I mean, you, believe me, if the cramps came into the room, you knew it was a it was a band, you know, just they definitely looked the part, you know. Yeah, I remember seeing Jello Biafra and part of his his um, stagecraft of part in his mic technique, you know, microphone technique they talk about for lead singers would at one point he would sort of scream fuck off and put his head in the bass drum of the drum kit with his microphone and then put his, mic his microphone in his mouth and sort of scream Ugh! from within the drum from within the drum as it was being played yeah I, I, that was great bit of stagecraft i remember seeing the cramps and they invited everyone to get on stage with them <laughs> And Thanks. I got on stage, and it, what was this singer called in The Cramps? Lux Interior. Lux Interior. Black hair dye had started s slipping down his back, his naked back, and mingled with the sweat, which he then rubbed all over me and my, <laughs> and my new white jacket. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he used to go on stage, and he would stick the microphone down his mouth, you know, and so he would... <laughs> a lot of the lyrics, you could not really tell what they were because it was coming from the back of his throat when he had the microphone in his mouth, you know. Yeah. But it was engaging, you know, and they were throbbing, you know. And so they definitely left an image, you know. And uh, a lot of the bands, whether it be Wall of Voodoo or Lords of the New Church or any of the bands, you know, they definitely made an impact. And that was the kind of thing that excited me, you know. And, and so... And when you Squeeze know, first went, you put the, the other, I mean, you took us, and of course we played at uh, CBGB's. Now that place has now become, in people's minds, a sort of a legend of the punk world. You know, it's like kind of got this whole uh, sort of aura and mystique about it, CBGB's. But that's where we first played. How do you remember CBGB's? Well, CBGB's is a dump. Let's face it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it it is a toilet. You know, you go backstage, you're fighting rats. You know. 
Uh, I mean, I got to know certain rats by first name basis, you know, but it has this legendary status, you know. And, uh, you know, places like the Marquee Club in London, you know, had sort of the same idea, or the Cavern in Liverpool, you know, these were not high class places, you know. But CBGB's was several notches down from the Marquee Club, let's be honest, you know. But it was the place that would book punk groups. So Squeeze played there, the police played there, Talking Heads, Blondie, B-52s, everybody, you know, I mean, anybody that was anybody played CBGBs. That was the first, the police first show in America was in CBGBs, you know. So it was a kind of a launching platform because it was known as the place where you're going to see some pretty outrageous groups, you know, which they could afford to do because the place was a dump. It's now a luxury shop, <laughs> but but still CBGBs. Have you been? Have you seen it recently? No, I think it is a brand, it, isn't it? Well, it's a luxury local... shop. You, if you want to go and buy a, t- a CBBs, CBBs, CBGB, CBBs. <laughs> if you want a, a, a t-shirt, it'll cost you five hundred dollars. So it's uh, it's well, turned around from being you know, the dump. Back it then, it was probably three dollars. You know. Yeah. What is your favourite form of transport? Do you is it you know you boats, cars, planes, trains, walking? What's your favourite way of of, tra- of travelling? To tell you the truth, my favourite way is to not travel at all. You know, <laughs> um, but if I, you know, the easiest, of course, when you get on a train, it's easy because you're not having to drive. You know, there's a space you can walk around. You know, I mean, I spent so so much time on an aeroplane. You know, I mean, it's it's all of a muchness. You know, but basically. I wouldn't say that travel is is one of the high points of rock and roll management, you know. But, you know, is it nice to be in a limousine as opposed to, you know, being crammed in the back of a van? Well, yeah, I would I would have to say a limousine is more comfortable than the back of a van, you know. Uh, is first class better than economy in an airplane? Well, yeah, it is, you know. I remember with the police, we flew Concorde, you know. And uh, even though the seats were a little small and all that, but, you know, three hours to New York was kind of nice, you know. It, it's pretty easy, but you don't really see very much. How do you get about France now, around your Gothic mansion? Well, I, I drive, you know. I mean, I'm in the countryside, so you get out, and you, you know, you drive from place to place, you know, and it's beautiful. And, you know, I don't really like the big... A lot of the big cities these days, they, you know, they really don't like cars, you know, like London and Paris and you know, parking is an issue. And so, you know, you go to a big city and you think, well, you know, the other day I went to Bordeaux and, you know, thinking, wow, great, we'll have dinner. Then you try to park and 
it's a nightmare. And so you finally give up and head back to some small town, you know. But, you know, Los Angeles, where I'm based half a year, I mean, they, they have come accustomed to the car. So you want to go to a restaurant, they've got, you know, valet parking. So you don't have to park, you know. You pull up in front, a guy takes your car and parks it who knows where. You have to pay a fee, but you go and eat at the restaurant, and, you know, it's fine. Where a lot of the big cities, you know, you've got to deal with the parking yourself, you know, and a lot of times it could be blocks away from where you want to go, you know. So transport is not one of the things I, I look forward to. Do you have any wild boars in your arrondissement? We do, and they're not only Frenchmen. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have actual animals who are wild boars. Yeah, that's and what I mean. uh, we see we see a few in the forest, and I think because COVID nineteen uh, happened, a lot of a lot of the hunting was stopped. You know, you've got now a plague of wild boars. We saw a couple out the front gate the other day, and yeah. uh, the whole family of them are thinking, "Wow, you know, we'd never seen that before." But I think it's because a lot of things were shut down during COVID, and a lot of the hunting stopped, and so you've got well, like in LA, all of a sudden you could see the city because there was no smog. Because cars couldn't drive, you know, things like that. So there's a lot more wild boars. That's that's a good thing. I'm not very keen. They can come bite you, can't they? With yeah, they enormous are. teeth. Yeah, um, and they'll go for you as well. And I knew there was one. There was one that escaped from um, an abattoir in Kent, and a fellow I know, one of the farmers, tried to shoot it, and he shot it about five times before it died. Oh, and it was coming for him as well. So, yeah, watch well, out. Well, remember, in Game of Thrones, the king dies because he got gouged by a wild boar. But they're afraid of people. They run, They but they can really move fast. Yeah. Wow. So, oh, well, they'll, they'll, um, they'll, they snuffle out your, your truffles, don't they, as well? Yeah, they do wreck the place a little bit, you know, but yeah. that that's part of what, you know, you, you, you have to put up with. You know, you, you live in the country and you got mice, you got bats, you got owls, you got, you know, wildlife, you know, so... Uh, it's not like you're living in the city, you know. Um, you you deal with that, you know, and that's that's part of what you're doing by living in the country, you know. I quite like the idea of having a carriage pulled by wild boars. Or owls. Or owls, that would be nice. Yeah. I quite like the idea of that. Yeah, I like that as well. Being towed through the sky by a lot of owls would be lovely. Boars on the land, and then when you decide to take off on your tour a carriage pulled by owls yeah that's right and it, because people are quite cross about about private planes now because they they use a lot of fuel but if you were pulled by owls people would be yeah. probably quite happy about that oh, mm. count me in me too well uh, thank you very much Miles Copeland thank you for joining us Miles Copeland glad to have been with you guys Well, there goes Miles flitting around the world uh, randomly in high-powered flying machines. There goes Miles, a man that doesn't actually really like travelling. He's a man that likes to stop at home. Oh, yeah. On an armchair. Yes. This podcast was produced and edited by Molly... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Stewart. Sound engineers were James Stewart and George Latham.